Well, it seems like we've had um, <clears throat> death by suicide or, or possibly an abortion. Suicides and abortions, uh, right. technologically speaking. Exactly. So, unfortunately, we obviously haven't seen the end of this is awful. It's a uh, happy ending. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully you can see where it was going, that everything was resolved. <laughs> um, but I'd, I'd, first of all, like to um, acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay my respects to elders past and present, which is an apposite point to leap up from because I want to ask you about the role of history in your work. And um, it's kind of an interesting point in Australian politics too in terms of um, Indigenous sovereignty because we currently have a Prime Minister who is resisting constitutional reform Mm -hmm. around increased recognition of uh, Indigenous voices. So we're kind of in the middle of a contestation around the nature of history, who owns it, who can speak for it, um, and a power play between government and forming First Peoples entities. So it seems to me that history is very crucial to your work, um, and after your presentation, certainly there is a really demonstrated interest in Victorian history in particular, Mm -hmm. and a kind of... um, sexual and moral history, I would say, too, in terms of the images that have been influential on your work or that you're referencing, um, like the Millet and um, other pre-Raphaelite painters, etc. And, of course, the Thomas Hood poem, The Bridge of Sighs, which I did look up and have a read of before tonight. And the contrast couldn't be more pronounced um, with Patrick and Mary's work because it's a very moralising kind of poem. And Clearly, there are a number of things operating within it around a sort of regret um, and a kind of plaintive sentimentality around the death of this young woman. But it's, it's melded with a kind of deeply patriarchal voyeurism around her beauty um, and around the beauty of her dead body. And as you mentioned, the um, centrality of the silence to that too. So it's like a kind of an equation between beauty, death, silence and the feminine. And I feel like what you're doing with your practice is somehow a corrective to that. Um, And in the past you've said that history is something that people are possessive about, that everyone wants something from history. So what do you want from history? Well, I guess um, to put aside what I want for a little bit, I think it's it's really due to the persistence of people who have not had their chance to tell their historical narrative or give their perspective. It's due to their persistence that we now take for granted that histor- history is something that you can contest and something that is it's um, appropriate to revise history and that we are continually awaiting people to step forward and and revise history for us so we can go forward with a better sense of the truth. Um, And so that's, of of course, what um, happens, um, what you're referring to with Aboriginal history, with African-American history 
uh, in the States. And um, I think even, you know, we're witnessing this Me Too movement um, with women coming forward about assault. That's that's what they're doing by stepping forward is correcting history and, and adding essential information to the historical record. So, um, and, you know, journalism, of course, where this is all being played out is, is you know, the, the first drafts of, of history. So, um, yeah, I think, I think now is a great time to witness the, the dynamism and the changing um, nature of history. But there were a lot of people who had to speak and kind of pour their hearts out for a long time and not be listened to in order to get us all to the point where we can admit that um, that history has to be revived continuously and contested. No, I, I mean, that's pretty much sums up what I feel as well. And we're just, um, Mary and I are both kind of right at this moment a little bit uh, absorbed with what's happening in the States just because during this trip we've been unavoidably checking the news with the current um, surprise or not surprise but pop election that just happened and it just shows that and you may not be aware of it but that a very important moment just occurred with uh, with history being revised and truth being raised enough that it caused a shift that we are hoping portends a larger shift in our uh, situation in the States. Um, just in relation to this idea of truth um, and something which is also very crucial and fundamental to your practice and the aesthetics of it is this element of masking um, and the fact that in all your video works, your eyes in particular are always masked. And I find that in incredibly intriguing because of, you know, the old kind of cliche that they are the windows to the soul and allegedly the most expressive part of the body. And yet you've elected very systematically and strategically to cover that over. Um, and it, it made me think about um, Nietzsche, of, of all people, in fact, uh, in his anti-authoritarian crusade beyond good and evil, um, which is an aphoristic text where he rails against organised religion and various forms of dogmatism with this kind of pursuit of, of freedom, essentially, a free, sort of free spirit. And in one of the aphorisms, he talks about the centrality of masking to truth, that the most profound agent or spirit or entity needs a mask. And, in fact, the, this profound entity is continually being surrounded by a mask. The more profound they are, the more there is this process of masking. So I wondered what you thought of that. Yeah, I think that, um, as, as I mentioned before, I think one, one purpose of the masking, like the, the total eradication of um, like the eyes and the skin and trading those um, individual features in for uh, symbolic versions of the same features. So trading the individual eyes and the individual narrative in for um, a, a group narrative. And I think that's one of the interesting 
things about um, this trope of the of the dead, silent Victorian woman is that you can see when when you look back in at you know that the paintings and at the poetry that it really was a recurring trope. It really was a foundational image, and so then that begs the question: Well, why? Um, so, but yeah, I think. You know, so, so often when we're trying to kind of plead your case or tell the truth or just be honest with somebody or even just give them information, kind of like we're doing now, I think, you know, eye contact and being present is considered essential. And in order to kind of establish a momentary person to person authority, it's a way of kind of claiming an authority to look somebody in the eye, have them look back at you. And um, so what we're trying to do is to find, find that platform for the, for the voice without the use of that eyeball-to-eyeball authority that we continually establish with each other every day just as a way to kind of get through our lives and communicate. So... You know, because we're interested in these kind of um, symbols moving through time and how they kind of erode and how they might stay through time, um, I think I think that's that's why. I, I will just so, say that like when we first started making work, we did not. <laughs> it, it was much more kind of a, a gut-based thing. We we did you know we weren't like oh I'm facing the individuality to reach for the symbolic and. You know, you, you don't, you don't, I, I think it's very important if you're going to be, you know, um, be, like, find a version of truth with your own self while you're in your studio, you can't be continually interrogating yourself while you're actually trying to act, trying to make something physical. Um, but that's kind of, I think, the, the reasoning that we've developed over the years, um, and I was quite taken by um, your observation on the nature of myth, mythology being at base anti-hegemonic or non-hegemonic. So it kind of corresponds with that in some way, this notion of creating a different kind of mythologizing process that isn't closed, that perhaps is a little more eruptive. Um, and, it, and it seems to be... Uh, very pronounced in your visual style as well, which is really theatrical and very bold, dramatic, clearly influenced by German Expressionism, early 20th century film and theatre. And with this sense of a kind of performativity that I think is quite unique and quite distinct, uh, that pivots on something to do with gender and transgender... And I thought it was interesting that you showed Man Ray's very famous photograph of uh, Duchamp in the persona of Rose Salavi. Um, because it seems like there is a kind of lineage of artists who work with very um, elaborate costuming, uh, often switching gender. And uh, Duchamp's the progenitor, but of course, there are more sort of late 20th century examples like Cindy Sherman's self-portrait series and Yasumasa Moramura's um, Daughters of History, etc., that are about this challenge to a kind of orthodoxy of history mm-hmm. through gendering and tra- transgendering the, the body. Mm-hmm. 
So giving it a different kind of voice in that way. I, I wondered if you feel that you identify with that kind of tradition or lineage. I, I do, and it's, it's quite an extensive uh, lineage. I, I, would, I would just say that I consider the lineage that we're participating in to be... Uh, it's a, it's a type of a mask, I think. It's, it's a costume that you take on and put off, and so therefore it's really quite essentially and foundationally different from, uh, you, you know, the the concept of transgender as an identity where where it's uh, it's not something that you take off and you put on uh, for the purpose of uh, exploration or art or anything it's um, so it's it's quite different um, uh, the identity mode versus the the art artistic mode but um, there's there's crossover there's it's not like a, a uh, non-porous wall between those two modes but i just um yeah I, to me i think of it as what i do as as a series of impersonations and so when i think back about the um kind of the intellectual history of of other types of impersonations um yeah I, 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 yeah, Duchamp, of course. Um, the film that we just finished takes place um, in a, a naval vessel at the end of the Second World War, and uh, in a submarine. And um, it's it's a very well known thing that in these kind of all single gender environments, these male environments, um, there was a lot of kind of um, burlesque shows, and there was a lot of female impersonation just to like to like entertain each other because um you know life on a submarine is so extremely tedious it's it's dangerously te- te- tedious and i think if you could um kind of pull off a little song and dance for the entertainment of your of your fellow sailors you were an extremely valuable part of of the community um yeah i, I think it's also important to just acknowledge the alignment of this idea of transgendering to the idea of the pun itself and how how the the punning is important in that <clears throat> the way the way a pun functions and that you have uh, a word meaning two different things and kind of suspended in the air at once and that the humor in it and the pleasure in it is that you are you you can oscillate back and forth between the meanings and the statement and I think there's an alignment there with the idea of of a kind of masking and play on an individual portraying someone else. And you know, in a theatrical sense, you know that that person is still this original person playing someone else. And you go along with it. And for a pun to be a pun, you go along with this double meaning so that you can sort of take pleasure in being the, in being tricked, knowing you're being tricked. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this brings us to another aspect of the work, which is um, your very evident love of wordplay and double entendres and various forms of punning, uh, which really activates the work. And at times, uh, you really foreground it by having the letters visible on the screen so that the audience is really apprised of that distinction between the you know two or more levels of meaning sort of linguistic meaning to the identical sort of phonetic sounds 
So I wondered if you if you can talk about where you first got that love of wordplay from. How did it originate? Um, well, I got it from um, one of my parents and I kind of inherited it. My dad is a really um, notorious punster. And so I was always into it, but I didn't start writing verse until... Um, I mean, I was in grad school for painting. I, I It wasn't even you know, in my mind um, to do anything other than be a painter, which is what I always was. But I did get, as as I mentioned, I got interested in the First World War, and it's just, it's really critical. Um, and, yeah, wordplay is... And I, so I didn't realize that I had this, like, um, need to like do wordplay in in the verse until I actually started writing it and so that you know that was kind of a late a late discovery but I think the fascinating thing to to us about wordplay is that is the simultaneity of of meaning and so you get two meanings at the same time um uh just like the word, the work can be funny or and sad at the same time, or kind of um, maybe meaningful and also annoying at the same time. I think we're very, very fascinated in that simultaneity. And one reason that we keep the text short and the films short is so that you can kind of, if you choose, um, like if you encounter it in a installation setting, it, you know, you you might watch it one and a half times or twice. And like um, like a, any like really great work, we wanted to make something that you can approach more than once, like your favorite novel that you read every year or a movie that you love or a painting that you're always noticing something new in. And so we really wanted to make something that had that quality. Most definitely um, has all the works that I've seen, the excerpts, a sense of that polyphonic nature or some kind of polyvalency that there is no single voice or no singularity of meaning the word quipping slips and slides over the characters and often there's more than one of you on screen so there's an overall sense of a kind of visual and semantic instability that is riotous as well so it brings me back to um, a word that you mentioned burlesque so I'm also interested in the relationship between the burlesque on the one hand, which is kind of conventionally understood as a sort of caricature or satire in literary or dramatic form of another literary or dramatic work that is dignified and serious. So it's taking the piss, essentially, as we would say here. Um, in contradistinction to the carnivalesque, which, you know, as you know, is an um, extraordinary sort of concept that was theorised by the Russian formalist um, critic uh, early in the 20th century through a rereading of um, Rabelais, Gargantuan and um, Pantagruel, where he came up with this notion of a material principle of parody. So it, it carried over some of the elements of burlesque, but rooted it in the body and in the bodily and specifically in a kind of disorderly body through this, this principle that he called grotesque realism, which I think is absolutely incarnate in your work where there is always this kind of play with the grotesque, the visceral, 
and of course in this is awful the, the talking the talking organs and in fact I think there is a line you know that really um, plays with this notion of a kind of Cartesian dualism only to contest it which is um, I was in filth submerged but now uh, the stomach's burst I see the light of day um, I stink therefore I am you know which is truly sort of wonderful wordplay but really quite profound in its philosophical implications as well but so connected to this Sparktian notion of the of the carnivalesque what did you think of that I mean is that a kind of conscious reference well I think one um, aspect of the burlesque or of taking the piss that I think is meaningful to us is um, that it's, you know, the burlesque is like satire. It's kind of a critical position. It's funny. Um, but the burlesque, I think, is something that happens more like in the moment. Uh, whereas, you know, satire, of course, is this, you know, highly uh, finessed art form. And the burlesque can just kind of happen uh, maybe with less planning involved. Um, and this is uh, like poetry, too. Um, a big influence um, for poetry for me is the idea of the um, the everyday poem like um, you know you used to write a sonnet to your mom on her birthday um, I really like that those types of poems the the modesty of them it really seems apparent too with um, a kind of preference for, for doggerel the idea of an easy rhyme rather than a highbrow literary form I'm suddenly sort of conscious that I feel like I'm hogging these two. Um, so perhaps at this stage I'd like to open it out to the floor, or to the grass, I should say, uh, to see if we have any questions for Mary or Pat. Uh, hi, so I'm interested uh, in the notion of masking, which you've already spoken about a little, uh, and specifically in the fact that you mask the eyes. I've worked with, uh, as a performer, with different types of masks and found them to, uh, you know, help a performer to cut off the face and to to and for the viewer to see the body. And when you're performing in a mask. Uh, you have this awareness of, of your body as seen by the audience, but the work that you're doing is quite different in the sense that it's done for video and that your eyes are also masked, so you don't have them uh, open a lot of the time. I imagine sometimes it's painted onto the eyes or the eyes are actually shielded, and I'm wondering how that um, influences the way the, the work kind of uh, sits in you as a, as a performer and your awareness of your body and your audience. Oh, that's a really interesting question. So usually I, I make the eyes out of like a, um, a little polymer clay and I use kind of like spirit gum glue to, to glue it to my face. I actually, for the last two films, I haven't done that and I've used elastic because when making the thong of Dionysus, I ripped some of my eyelid off and that was horrible. Um, so uh, I might not do the glue again, um, but... That's, uh, but I can see, but it's it's uh, it's um, not a depth-based vision, so like I have to be careful not to walk into the mics um, and cut myself, which I've done. Um, but I guess just to go back to the to the masks, which you point out from the performer's perspective, is like a profoundly 
can be a profoundly refreshing experience to kind of drop the self so literally and to take on something else. And I, I guess for some reason I was just thinking about the refreshment of, of the mask um, and that compared to social media, which I think is like a masking-based strategy, except rather than like, t- you know, putting down your everyday self and like, oh, you're transformed into like a god or something for the duration of your performance or your idea that you're acting out. It's like you have to pick up a different version of yourself and carry that. And so you've got all these like versions of the self and there's no refreshment there. There's no like renewal of the perspective of like, who actually am I? Because that's one of the things that um, performing in a mask or even just like really losing yourself in a novel or a film, it's just like you just get that, that relief of the weight of yourself is just taken off you for a little bit. This is one of the problems of social media, I think, because it, you're constantly, you are performing, you are doing that extra work of like broadcasting a self which may or may not be the truth but it doesn't have that aspect of refreshment and perspective that mask work can bring sorry for the social media diatribe but there's a question over here Yeah, hi. Um, I'm trying very hard to formulate a question around something that you said toward the beginning of your presentation. You said that sort of research into World War I would effectively be inadequate and incomplete and incorrect without a deep understanding of the poetic dimension of that history. And I'm curious about how that stands clearly within like a pre-camera, pre-television, pre-drone representation of like wartime and what other kinds of like cognitive faculties we would have to rely on. And then Patrick, later you alluded to this recent shift in the way in which we encounter truth as it exists within the presidency. So I'm curious about a potential like I don't know, it sounds so cheesy, but a revival of a poetic interpretation of politics seems to be necessary, Mm -hmm. unfortunate. Um, Yeah, I'm trying hard, because it seems like there's something there, but uh, a negation of, like, the evidentiary process, maybe. Yeah, I think that you're gesturing really um, clearly to... The, I, I think the forms of non-literal meaning that are essential to forming an understanding of contemporary events. And so I think what maybe we would both acknowledge that it's not enough to just um, watch the news and or like get read, read the newspaper. Uh, like journalism alone isn't enough that we need we need movies um, we need novels um, and poetry too of course 
And I think what you're also gesturing to with this question is trying to understand the forms of theatricality that uh, are not openly acknowledged. So we all know that, like, you know, cable news is, like, highly theatrical and stylized, and there's, there's like, genres and recurring personalities within that ecosystem of cable news that aren't there to literally... Uh, they're not there to add value in the form of literal meaning, but they're there to add a sense of style and a sense of, like, um, gravity um, and kind of oomph, I guess, um, to, to, the, to the news. To, yeah, it's a really interesting point. Yeah, but I was thinking also of how... So we may not have this poetic thing going on but we do have like a or at least until Colbert changed jobs we had the kind of supreme satirical element of the of the non-literal response that sort of clarifying response that for example someone like Stephen Colbert when he was the Colbert report um but what admit what your your thought kind of makes me think about is how while that satirical response is really um sort of satisfying and maybe energizing and actually does kind of more get at the truth and and we love satire and we sort of think of part of what we're doing as satire it makes me wonder is is a diet of only satire while not pursuing any kind of earnest poetic approach dangerous you know like to to not have to only have this sort of critical satirical response and not have an earnest poetic response that isn't sarcastic <laughs> um, it, it's a very interesting question thought about how we should be responding to the current environment for me. Yeah, I would just say that reminded me of something that T.S. Eliot mm-hmm. said, which is um, that the, the most rare form of, of artist is a true satirist, that this is like the most highly refined um, form of artistic endeavor, which from T.S. Eliot I think is saying something. Um, and so I, I think that we're never in danger of too much satire, but satire really relies on a ground of literalism and a ground of, if not truthfulness, aiming for truthfulness. And I think that the degradation of that background of like general trust and truthfulness is really degrading. And so that's why you 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 know you have comics saying this is like impossible to make fun of somebody like a Trump because you you can't write the jokes fast enough and he's he's like he's already engaged in a form of self-parody and he's been doing it for years so it's very difficult to to grasp something like him with satire because he's he's already incorporating um the the kind of distance from the truth that satire brings like He's already so far from the truth. So, well, I know we've kind of gone on for longer, so just wanted to thank you so much for 
your patience and thank you very much. So I think we'll wrap it up at this point. Um, so I'd just like everyone to join me in thanking Patrick and Mary Reed Kelly for their generosity with their insights and showing their work and to reiterate that the humours at Monash University Museum of Art will continue until this Saturday. So if you haven't been down there to see the exhibition, I thoroughly encourage you to, um, not least, of course, to see their work, but there are other excellent works as well. So thank you very much, Mary and Patrick. Thank you.